Well, let us briefly pray once again, and then we'll come to God's Word. Now, O Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our Redeemer. Amen. It's the Sunday after Easter, so what will be our theme today? We have heard the gospel accounts preached in Bible studies and Sunday services and Good Friday services over Easter of that great saving event, the the death and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. And it's wonderful to regularly have those gospel narratives brought before us. Paul's letters, and indeed the other New Testament letters, they provide explanation of the events that are narrated in the Gospels. They were, of course, written first at Paul's letters. They were written before the Gospels. The the events, certainly for those who were in Israel at the time, were, were fresh in the mind. And the letters were explaining the significance of them. So in answer to the question, we go on, don't we? Preaching and unpacking the death and resurrection of Jesus. And in a sense, we have no other message. Everything else is in that context. So I would like to speak to you from the closing words of Philippians chapter 2, verse 8. Even the death of the cross. Even the death of the cross. I've often been struck by these words. Do they not seem a little superfluous? Paul could simply have said, obedient to the point of death, on a cross. But he he says, obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. And the little word even is a very common connecting word in the Greek language that can mean but. Or that provides an explanation and expansion of something, and that is its use here. Gerald Hawthorne has a helpful comment that this little word calls calls special attention to this most striking element in the humiliation of Christ. So we might say he even died on the cross. So there is no waste here. There is no redundancy. Paul is highlighting the startling death that Christ died. So that's what I want us to think about this little phrase, even the death 
of the cross. And what it meant for Jesus, first of all, and then secondly, what it means for us. So firstly, even the death of the cross, what it meant for Jesus. When we think about the cross, it is ultimately, of course, his work to save us. Now, there's a sense in which it provides a pattern, and I will mention that. And in many ways, the context of this whole passage is encouraging us to think about the pattern it provides, and I'll, I'll think more about the, the, the burden of this whole section, and particular verse 12 and 13 of chapter 2 this evening. But first and foremost, before that, it is his work to save. The execution of the Father's great plan. So let us think about what the even here involved for our Lord Jesus Christ. And first of all, it involved humiliation. This great passage, verse 6 to 11, is dealing with Christ's humiliation and exaltation. And this could be pictured, if you like, as a U-shaped curve with that steep uh, bottom. Apparently, I wasn't going to get into lecturing on Greek a minute ago. I'm certainly not going to start talking about mathematics, but apparently it's called a, a, a parabola curve. And that, in a sense, is a picture of Christ's humiliation and exaltation. And these words, even the death of the cross, bring us to the bottom of the curve of humiliation. Christ's humiliation began in his not counting it robbery to be equal with God and becoming a bond servant as a man. His incarnation was a significant humiliation in and of itself, even if he had come as the most powerful king and holy king that ever was on earth. But the circumstances of his birth were humiliating. He wasn't born in a palace, but in a stable. Growing up as one who was fully man, who had taken Christ's, uh, taken, sorry, hu human nature upon himself, he had the humiliation of having to learn. He had to learn his, his Hebrew. He had to learn his maths. He had to learn his Bible. At, you know, the Old Testament wasn't just there as a, an automatic download on his brain because he was both God and man. He had to learn. And that was humiliation for one, and it's mysterious, isn't it, who was also fully God and who knows all things. 
Living as a poor tradesman amongst sinning, cursing humanity was deep humiliation. Then having his earthly ministry largely rejected, that also was great humiliation. And then becoming obedient to death, that seemed like the final straw of humiliation. For as God, he could not die. And he was a sinless human being and therefore exempt from the penalty of death that sin brings. But there would be lower still. It is even the death of the cross. And this was, as you know, the tortuous death reserved for the worst of sinners. It wasn't to be mentioned in plight company. To Jews, it was a sign that he was cursed. Cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree. To Romans, it was a sign of the utmost shame. Cicero wrote, let the very name of the cross be far removed, not only from the body of a Roman citizen, but even from his thoughts, his eyes, his ears. Even the death of the cross points to a humiliation, the like of which there has never been. But secondly, what this meant for Jesus was agony. This humiliation was agony for the Savior, and it was agony because of why he endured it. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Undoubtedly, the physical suffering was great. It's not to be underestimated. But physically, and hear me carefully, physically, Christ suffered less than others. Some strong men had hung on the cross for days. He had died within hours. The great agony was spiritual. As he, who was, as he who was with the Father of purer eyes than to behold evil took this mass of human guilt upon himself. The enormous load of human guilt was on my Savior laid. With woes, as with a garment he for sinners was arrayed. Humiliation, agony, and thirdly, forsakenness. This meant for Jesus forsakenness. It wasn't just agony to bear that enormous load. It even involved a sense of forsakenness because he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, of course, there was no division in the Trinity. 
But when we read these words, even the death of the cross, surely we should try to understand something of his perspective. He clearly felt forsaken by his holy father on account of the sins that he bore. And that forsakenness, insofar as he was a human being, bearing sin was real. So one writer puts it this way. Forgive the slightly overly long quotation, which I try to avoid, but this is very good. The inability to say Abba suggests that at last the veil of imputed sin, ignominy, and suffering was so impenetrable that his sonship was obscured even from himself. Not necessarily in the sense that he doubted it, but in the sense that it was not present as any consolation to his consciousness. The one who was with God comes to be without God. He is outside. He is an unholy and accursed thing. It is against the brilliant background of former eminence that the contrasting darkness of the dereliction is silhouetted most clearly. So in this sense, we can say he is even forsaken. So we can never plumb the depths, can we, of what it meant for Christ to take away our sin. We think we know it all about the cross, perhaps. Yet I think this little word, even, is enough to remind us that we don't. The hymn I quoted earlier continues, Eternity, though infinite, is short enough to trace the virtues of his healing wounds, the wonders of his grace. So we must thank God the Father for giving us his Son. We'll consider in a moment that the cross certainly does show us God's holiness, and as a result of his holiness, he is angry at sin. But underlying all is God's goodness. He has devised this way of salvation that none of us could ever have imagined. We've heard recently on sermons in John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And that's through the cross. So you, we shouldn't see the cross as primarily a, a pacifier of a father who is irresolutely angry, but as the supreme demonstration of his love. God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So praise to the Father, praise to the Son that he endured even death on a cross. This was humiliation. This was suffering. And praise God the Holy Spirit who reveals this event 
to us as history and who also applies Christ's work to us. Even is a small word. But in this connection here, it takes us into the eternal love of God to redeem a people for himself. So that's what it meant for Jesus. Secondly, even the death of the cross, what it means for us. What it means for us. The priority, as I've said, is what the cross accomplished for us, but it is also vital to consider what the cross teaches us. And when we consider Jesus even died on the cross, surely there are life-changing lessons for us on how to be saved and how to be sanctified. And let us note two or three. Firstly, God is holy and must punish sin. Even the death of the cross reminds us of God's great love for us. The cross is, someone has said, the pulpit of God's love. However, the cross also displays God's holiness. This is the sum of all God's perfections. In his holiness, God cannot overlook sin. As a consequence, God has perfectly righteous anger at sin. Now, his wrath isn't bad-tempered like ours so often is. It isn't easily provoked. It is an expression of his holy justice. And this isn't contrary to his goodness. Exodus 34, 6-7, it wonderfully states God's goodness. And the Lord passed before him, that is Moses, and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering, and abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin." Yet precisely because he is good, the verse goes on. By no means clearing the guilty. By no means clearing the guilty. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. God would not be good to clear the guilty, to just let sin go. But he will not clear the guilty. Now, you may be comfortable enough with that thought if you're thinking about Putin or various other tyrants or violent criminals, rightly so. But we are all guilty because God is perfectly holy. He expects perfect obedience. And because he is good and just, he can't leave sin like yours and mine unpunished. And the cross reminds us of this. 
But thank God this is so because the cross is also the wonderful way our sins can be forgiven. Even the death of the cross for Jesus means that for us, God can be just and the justifier of those who have faith in Jesus. So God is holy and must punish sin. That's what it means for us. But secondly, even the worst sinners can be forgiven. This is the good news. God must punish sin, but even the worst of sinners can be forgiven because on the cross, Christ bore that sin. He became as the worst of sinners, not in himself, but because he, he, he had the sins of all his people counted to him. Luther wasn't afraid, as usual, to put it daringly, that through this means of imputation being counted sin for us, Christ became the greatest thief, murderer, adulterer, robber, desecrator, blasphemer, etc. There has ever been anywhere in the world. How? Because his humiliation climaxed in taking all these sins of all who believe upon himself. Remember Paul's words to the Corinthians, such were some of you, but you're washed, you're sanctified, you're justified. Think of Luke 23, where the two criminals were crucified with Jesus. Matthew tells us that both had been mocking Jesus. But in Luke, we then find one repenting and believing at the very last hour. And Jesus says to him, today you will be with me in paradise. I remember reading of a chief executioner in Pol Pot's regime in Cambodia who repented and was converted. And he handed himself in and he went to the war crimes tribunal and went to prison for the rest of his life. He died in prison in 2020. That is grace, but a just God can only do this because Jesus obeyed God's law perfectly and became obedient to death, even the death of the cross. So what about you? You are not, I'm sure, in the category of these men that I've mentioned, and yet you need forgiven also. Self-righteousness may be your great problem. It was the Pharisee in the parable of Jesus who did not go home justified, who was not acceptable to God. And it's possible to be proud of 
your religion, your church going, and even belonging to a church such as this. Well, we thank God for faithful churches. You should not stop coming. I think sometimes we maybe overstate this, you know. It's not about going to church and then as if we, we, we don't want you here. That's not the point. The point is you cannot rest in these things. You are to strive to enter. You are not to exclude yourself from hearing the gospel, but yet you cannot rest on that. You need to see yourself as the sinner and cry out, God, be merciful to me. Because he died even the death of the cross and rose again, Jesus says, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. But if you won't come, then you'll have to answer for your own sin. The blood is of no effect. And again, Dr. Davies reminded us recently in the after meeting that plainly and honestly, reality is that sin against a holy God who is infinite must receive eternal punishment. So what it means for us is that God is holy and must punish sin. Even the worst sinners can be forgiven. And then lastly, even taking the lowly place can be done. Even taking the lowly place can be done. For us all, even the death of the cross provides a challenge concerning our attitude. And in the context here, Paul is really getting to the heart of his concerns for the Philippians. He wants them to live a holy life, and in particular, to express that with love for one another, with unity. There were threats to the unity of the church in Philippi. And so he writes in verse 5, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Christ came not to be served, but to serve. And this holy mindset explains his humiliation. This is why he went down and down to the very bottom of the curve, even to death on a cross. And that is the pattern for our attitude. You can only hope to follow in his steps in this way if you are a Christian, if you, if you are united with him in his death and resurrection. But as believers, we must follow in his steps. And so we read in verses 3 and 4, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. We struggle to do this, don't we? But Jesus tells us by his example, go down, take the lowly place, go lower still. 
let the greatest among you become as the youngest and the leader as the one who serves. So this message, even the death of the cross, it's a saving word, but it also provides the pattern of our discipleship. So as we finish, how did Jesus bear the cross? How was he able to go even to death on the cross? The humiliation, the agony, the forsakenness. The answer is given in Hebrews 12 to who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Or in verse 9 to 11 of this passage, Therefore God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven and of those on earth and those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So the curve turns upwards again. He rises from the dead. He ascends into heaven at God's right hand. He receives the name that is above every other name, And he is coming again, and every knee will bow before him. He will be worshipped by all. That is the gospel, and it is also the pattern for us. It's the way to be saved. It's the way to grow in sanctification. Jesus himself told us, on a number of occasions. Everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Amen. Let us bow in prayer. Our Father, we do praise and thank you for sending us your Son, and we do simply babble thinking of what this meant for him and and for us, but we thank you that we are nevertheless not left in the dark, that we can know the truth, that we have your word. So we pray, Lord, your help to understand these things, that you would apply these things to every heart savingly, and that we might also grow in that salvation. For in his name we pray. Amen. Let us sing then as we come in a moment to the Lord's table. We will sing Hymn 223, The Enormous Load of Human Guilt Was On My Saviour Laid. And then verse 4, Eternity, 
The wind finite is short enough to trace the virtues of his healing wounds, the wonders of his grace. Thank you.